Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the devastating BC wildfires. An estimated 200 buildings destroyed or damaged in the Okanagan fires. That's from officials on the ground yesterday. The assessment of the damage continuing in the Shuswap and other wildfire regions. We start our coverage today with Premier David Eby, and I'm very pleased he could take the time for us. Premier, thank you for coming on today. You bet, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about the day you had yesterday in the fire zone. I know you met a lot of people there. Let's start with your helicopter flyover of the region. What did you see up there and what was going through your mind as you, as you saw it? Well, it was uh, it was quite something, uh, Mike, to see um, West Kelowna and uh, Lake Country and uh, in particular uh, the uh, devastation of the homes that burned down. I mean, when they're uh, burning down in this wildfire situation, it's right to the foundation and, and rubble. Uh, and uh, sort of uh, what seems from the air of a bit of arbitrariness, you know, one home burned down and the home right next door uh, fully intact. Um, but what was also apparent from the air was the the impact of the Unified Command firefighting crews. Uh, these are municipal firefighters from all across the province, lower mainland, Vancouver Island, north. Uh, coming together uh, to support the wildfire effort. And you could see, uh, particularly in Lake Country, uh, fire burning right up to the perimeter of people's homes. And you could see the fire retardant. You could see the uh, local fire crews working in the spot fires. And uh, just the amazing work that they've done. It could have been uh, so much worse. And and just super grateful that everybody is working together uh, to, to battle these fires and save people's homes. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that a lot of homes were saved as well. I mean, we've seen a lot of homes lost, but a lot a lot was saved too. Do you think enough is being done between fire seasons here to prevent the kind of damage that we've seen? Could, should there be a formal review of this wildfire season to see what kind of lessons we can learn from it? Yeah, I think there are going to be some very important lessons to take away from this. This uh, fire season is coming at the end of uh four years of drought in British Columbia, so it's more intense and more extreme than we've seen uh, maybe ever, according to the fire service. Uh, they saw fire spreading two and a half kilometers uh, with, with embers in the Kelowna area. Usually they would only ever, in extreme situations, see a fire spread two kilometers through embers. Uh, they saw fire tornadoes. Uh, they saw a fire move uh, 20 kilometers in 12 hours, which is just remarkably fast for, uh, for fire activity. They had to evacuate uh, uh, firefighter camps. And so in this kind of situation, when you have tens of thousands of people under evacuation order in a very short period of time, uh, it put, puts huge strain on uh, local governments. And one of the pieces of feedback they gave to us is, look, uh, it's time to look at having a year-round uh, professionalized emergency response here because we're, uh, we're just not able to respond the way we know we need to to support people. And, and uh, I heard that loud and clear, and, and that's something we're going to look at. We already have our wildfire teams working year-round because the fire season is so much longer and it starts so quickly, which is how we were able to support Alberta early on. And uh, and I was, you know, when I was out on the tarmac and I saw the Alberta planes uh, out there in uh, Kamloops, uh, I know that they're supporting us back, so I'm very grateful for that. We've seen a lot of people lose their homes here, sadly. The happy news here is there's no loss of life reported to this point, which is awesome. But for people who have lost everything, their homes have burned down. What kind of reassurance or guarantees can you give them that the government will be there to help them? And how do we know that this won't turn into another Lytton-style non-rebuild? Like two years later, this Lytton is flattened, burned to the ground, and there's still no. we still haven't seen any significant rebuilding there. How can, can you assure people that won't happen in West Kelowna? Yeah, so uh, so a couple of uh, pieces. It, it sounds strange to say it, uh, Mike, but uh, given that we're still in the middle of the crisis, there's still active fires in uh, in West Kelowna and uh, and uh, many other parts of the province right now, threatening uh, communities. Uh, but uh, we're already working with the federal government on accessing federal disaster response for British Columbians and uh, and working with them with our provincial supports uh, so that they're there when people are uh, back from their hotels and they're uh, they're looking at how to rebuild their lives. Uh, that will be there with local governments and the federal government uh, and indigenous governments to support them. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's devastating for people to lose homes like this. The other is the the distinction between what we're seeing in uh, West Kelowna and Kelowna, uh, Shuswap uh, and Lytton. Uh, Lytton burned to the ground, including the city hall. 
uh, major infrastructure, all the power, water, uh, sewage is, is no longer accessible. Uh, the, the place was uh, toxic as a result, and the whole site had to be uh, cleared. It's an archaeological site as well, with tens of thousands of years of human occupation on the site, uh, dramatically complicating things. City Hall lost all the records. It's just not the situation we're facing in West Kelowna and Lake Country, and so uh, the local governments are intact. Uh, the firefighting crews have managed to save critical infrastructure, including a water treatment plant that was just about to be commissioned brand new for $75 million, a huge uh, uh, success, and that that didn't burn down. Uh, so uh, so it's, a, it's quite a different situation, but uh, in any event, we'll be there for Lytton, we'll be there for, uh, for the Okanagan and support people in the rebuild. Speaking of BC Premier David Eby, after his tour of the wildfire zone yesterday, let's talk about the, the shoe swap fire for a moment. And we've talked to residents from the shoe swap fire zone on the show this week, many of whom, as you know, have expressed a lot of frustration with some of the restrictions that were in place. There were locally organized efforts to try and supply people behind fire lines with food, water, fuel to keep generators running with the power out. And a lot of people think that the restrictions went went too far. Let's have a listen very quickly here to Shoe Swap resident Alan McDonald here and his thoughts on being told, look, you can't supply people on the lake. Let's listen. We'll find our own way. I don't care if we got to paddle over in a raft. We'll, we'll go help these people. They need help. Okay, so he says he doesn't care what, what authorities are saying. He'll, he'll paddle over there in a raft to get help to people. Premier, I know you talked to people from Shoe Swap yesterday who expressed similar concerns. What do you say to them? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, first of all, I think it's helpful for listeners to understand, uh, for, for those who may not, uh, it certainly came a lot clearer for me uh, talking to people from the area yesterday. Shoe Swap's an area where there's a lot of folks uh, with a lot of experience in the forest industry. You know, they, they know the bush, uh, they're uh, experienced with heavy equipment, and they want to help. And, and they're getting orders from government, uh, from our government, to say, look, please leave this area, do not stay in this area. And uh, they're looking at their homes, their neighbors' homes. They know they have the experience, they have the knowledge, and they're torn about what to do. And, uh, and so uh, the reason we're asking people to leave is, uh, is their lives are at risk. We saw, we've seen fire activity, uh, uh, really experienced uh, firefighters who located our firefighter camps. Uh, we had to evacuate firefighters. The fire turned so quickly from these camps and put them in hotels. Uh, instead of in the camps close to the fires because it moves so quickly. It is really unpredictable out there. And we've been in a situation where we haven't lost any lives so far, and I'm very grateful for that. And we really want to keep it that way. Uh, and so when people are uh, doing their own thing in the bush, uh, which includes uh, uh, using uh, equipment that firefighters have staged uh, and, uh, and deploying that equipment because people know how to use it. They think they're, they're assisting when the firefighters go to find it and it's not there. And they go to use it when it's not there. It puts firefighters at risk. When people are out in the bush doing their own thing, uh, it puts the unified fire command at risk because if the fire turns, they have to be rescued. Instead of having our firefighters fight the fire, they're rescuing people who are out on their own. So one of the things, Mike, the wildfire service is trying to do is to find ways to incorporate that local knowledge, people who have that experience into the firefighting effort. And I think after this, uh, uh, having another hard look at what they do in Australia around um, accessing and using that local knowledge, uh, but I got to say, you know, I hear the leader of the Conservatives, John Rostad, out there saying that people need to, uh, that, they, that they should stay and defend their homes if, if that's what they want to do. Uh, I just think it's the wrong approach. I think people have to work as a team. We have to work together to fight these fires. That was what was successful in the Kelowna area. And that's what will be successful in Shoe Swap and other areas of the province. But, but, there were, but there were also people on Shoe Swap Lake that were not under an evacuation order, that were simply in their homes, not being ordered to leave their homes and they're without power running out of food and a lot of these sort of local grassroots efforts to supply them were targeted to those people they, they have not they're not under an evacuation order but they need help and yeah, what do you say to those people yeah, yeah go ahead yeah it's, a, it's a, sorry mike to interrupt yeah it's a, it's a different situation so people who are not under evacuation order we had a truck uh in two days ago with supplies we had a truck in yesterday with supplies uh, we're continuing to get supplies, and people might not realize that. You know, they might uh, be looking on social media, they see something, and they think people aren't getting supplies. Uh, there are uh, coordinated efforts to get supplies into those areas. One of the things you heard from uh, the gentleman who was on is saying, look, I want to paddle across and support my neighbors. I get it. Um, I would want to do the same thing. Uh, but the fire service needs access to the lake to water bomb the fires. And if they get a clearing in the smoke and they get a chance to do that, they need to be uh, grabbing water out of the lake. They can't be worried about a guy in a raft. Uh, that's bringing supplies out to his neighbor that's trying to do the right thing. 
but is in the way of that firefighting effort. So uh, we are getting supplies out there and, and supporting people, but we are not supplying the uh, areas that are under evacuation order, and I think that's where the tension is. Speaking to BC Premier David Eby, let me ask you quickly about the lifting of the travel restrictions that were in place for just a very, very short time. And the restrictions are announced Saturday, lifted yes, largely lifted yesterday. You had a ton of hotel cancellations. Do you think that these travel restrictions were, like, looking at it now, uh, were necessary or they went too, went potentially went too far? And the reason I ask that is I want to play a clip here for you from the head of the Tourism Association here in the Okanagan who was on the show yesterday, Ellen Walker-Matthews, who pointed out that, okay, you know, we emptied out our hotels and they, they stayed more or less empty during this. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Our hotels, since the order on Saturday, are empty. They're available for evacuees. We are seeing some, but we're not seeing a tremendous amount of them yet. In Kamloops, the hotels are sitting at about 20% occupancy right now. Okay, so the hotels are like 80% empty in Kamloops. Was that travel restriction absolutely necessary? Yeah, we uh, we had 30,000 people, at, at the peak 35,000 people under evacuation order, uh, and, uh, and had uh, half of those folks. Uh, needed hotel rooms in addition to the firefighters we had traveling from across the province um, that needed accommodation as well. Uh, we would not have had near enough rooms. Uh, these are very blunt instruments, Mike, and they're a, they're a last resort, uh, which is why uh, you know, we, uh, we implement them very reluctantly uh, and uh, why we removed it as quickly as we could when uh, it became clear that people were finding places with family and friends uh, and not uh, needing to access the hotel rooms the way that uh, they might possibly have. But I can tell you, we did not want to be in the situation of not having space available for people who are fleeing the fires or for firefighters who are coming to help. Premier, I appreciate you taking the time for the listeners today. Thank you for coming on. You bet, Mike. It's good to be on the show. I look forward to the next time. Talk about this difficult economy here now. We discussed this on the show yesterday. I'm still getting emails on it now. You take a look at the price of housing and not just buying a home, but rents have gone through the roof too. Grocery prices in the, in the grocery store are just ridiculous. Now, here's the question. Is this especially unfair to young people? Is the economy rigged against young people? You take a look at the rapid rise in home prices and rents too. Rents have gone absolutely crazy. And you compare that to people's income. How can people afford this now? now? People have been priced out of the market, and it's particularly tough for young young buyers trying to break in. We've got Ron Butler standing by to discuss it. Have a listen to this here first. And I played this yesterday. I want to play this for you again because this is a trend we're seeing on social media right now. Young people, young Canadians, especially in Vancouver, taking to social media to talk about what they're experiencing out there, how they're feeling about this economy. People who just can't afford to move out of their parents' home. Have a listen, then we'll discuss. I have $70 worth of groceries on my table right now, and I genuinely don't even know what I purchased that made it to $70. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24. And I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living, and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything, really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like you need $700,000 plus to even get a half-decent home. I feel so utterly stuck. You go to school, you get a degree, and you're still not guaranteed a job. 60k a year that used to be like a decent amount of money not anymore i was telling my parents like it's just so frustrating that like you do all the right things you go to university and then you come out you get a job whatever and you can barely afford rent okay let's discuss now with my guest ron butler ron is a mortgage broker butlermortgage.ca i encourage you to follow him on social media he's everywhere he's excellent ron thank you for coming on today happy to be here mike Hey, Ron, when you hear the voices of these young Canadians kind of posting these these messages here, some of them almost like reduced to, to tears as they describe the economic situation that they're in. You know, I, I got a feeling for, for young people, especially in 
Vancouver or Toronto, you know, these super expensive cities. Maybe it's different in other cities in, in the country, but what are you hearing? Are you hearing a lot of that from young people? You're hearing all the time. I mean, yeah. let's let's try to sum up this profound, ugly unfairness between generations. So 30 years ago, I bought a house in a nice street, a big house on a decent-sized lot, a nice neighborhood in the GTA, and I found it doable. Yeah, sure, you had to find a down payment, you had to put the deal together, but it was doable. I did it, okay? Today, we well, we move forward to, say, 2005, that would have been an awful lot harder for the same young person to buy that same house. It would have been tremendously harder. Jump forward to 2015. Well, really hardly anybody could do it at that point. I mean, the house prices had risen so much. And we fast forward to today, the only word to describe it is hopeless. There is absolutely no young person who didn't get a million dollar down payment gift from their parents or co-signers uh, or you name it could ever buy that same home today. So that's unfairness, and it's unfairness on an enormous level. Yeah, especially when you take a look at the income gap, right? Like if you take a look at the median income in, say, Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, or Greater Toronto, where you are, for example, like it just doesn't, the math just doesn't work anymore, right? Like it used to be if you had a decent, good-paying, affordable kind of middle-class job, you could afford to buy a home, right? Not anymore. I've talked to people who've got good-paying jobs making like 70, 80K a year. And they can't afford to, never mind, buy a place. They're tr having trouble finding a place to rent. What, like, what are you hearing from people who are making, like, you know, good money? They've got good jobs. Okay, so to qualify for the average house price in the GTA, Greater Toronto Area today, and it's even a little bit worse in Vancouver, but GTA today, to qualify to pay the mortgage on a 20% down payment home for the average price, you need to make $242,000 a year. Your yeah. family has to give to a family income of 242. Let's yeah. just call it for what it is. It's impossible and it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who's making that kind of money? Not many people. Now, what are the answers here? You touched on a couple of solutions like, okay, if a young person, if they're in the fortunate position where they have parents or in-laws who can help them out, right? Give them some money. Like, are you seeing that? Like, are people are, are people getting money from their parents to get into the market? We've seen it for the last five years, but with these interest rates, even that's dried up, um, you know, because they can't make the payments. Even with a huge down payment gift from their parents, they can't make the payments. I mean, it's, it's just hmm. too hard. Uh, you know, we got interest rates in the 6% range. We have to use a stress test and qualify these people for mortgages in the 8% range. And on these house prices, it just becomes an impossibility, even with a massive gift. Yeah. What about co-signing? Like you mentioned that. How does that work, by the way, to co-sign for a mortgage? Well, you could make the case that it's fundamentally dangerous because the person who co-signs, if it's a parent, an elderly parent or somebody of that nature, if those are the people co-signing, they're actually going on the hook for the full amount of the mortgage. It's Co-signing is not like you're on for your share of the mortgage. You're co-signing for the entire mortgage. If there's four people on the mortgage, all four people are 100% responsible for the mortgage, not 25%. So it, the difficulties of these interest rates today, the difficulties of these house prices today, even some parents who want to see their kids in a house are starting to say, I don't know if I can take that risk. It's just too worrisome. Speaking of Ron Butler, mortgage broker, butlermortgage.ca, what is your outlook, say, right now when you take a look down the road at way, the way this market is going, interest rates the way they are, fears of another rate hike? Uh, at least there's going to be no rate decreases, I don't think, in any time soon. And I know but nobody can predict this stuff with precision, Ron, but how do you, do you see it improving at any point? The only hope of uh, improvement is actually tied to a horrible outcome, which is a severe recession, which will cause unemployment and a drastic slowdown in the economy. At that point, the Bank of Canada can definitely stop raising and eventually consider cutting rates. But that's a terrible outcome, right? The only way we can get to a point where there's a chance is if we throw a bunch of people out of work in a recession. Because let's face it, that's what a rapid rise in interest rates is designed to do. It's designed to slow the economy down to a crawl 
and which inevitably results in unemployment. What about when you take a look at population growth going forward here, and we have very aggressive immigration targets, we want to bring in 500,000 new immigrants a year here in the in the immediate outlying years here, and then there are even more people coming into the country on top of that when you consider temporary foreign workers or, or refugees. So everything, people have to live somewhere. How does that... How does that affect the equation here as the population continues to go up? It does create a theoretic floor under prices, but nothing stands up to unemployment in in the mortgage business, in the housing business. Unemployment is the great leveler. And quite frankly, uh, if there's a high enough level of unemployment, if you're dealing with a recession, a lot of those temporary foreign workers will just go back home. I mean, they, they they will see no reason to stay if the rents are through the roof and the jobs are thinning out. So yeah. we will see some relief, but you make a great point. Massive immigration levels put a floor under house prices that are simply too high and unaffordable to young people in Canada. Okay. What about the supply side of the equation here? Now, we've talked about population growth and the, the, the incredible demand for ha- affordable housing. There doesn't seem to be a lot around, especially in this city. What about supply? Like if we just build more stuff, you know, when you take a look at housing starts across the country, I mean, we're not matching. I mean, we're not even coming close to matching the demand or population growth, are we? I'll give you an even worse bit of news. The starts are falling. The starts are falling this year because developers and builders find that they, with these high interest rates, they've got to pay high mortgage rates too. They've got to pay high financing costs too, because they're, they have to, have um, financing in place while they're building the buildings, when they're building the houses. And those rates have quadrupled. So there's many, many builders and developers just saying, we're going to put this on pause until uh, interest rates come down because we can't make the financial formula work. We can't make it pencil. So we're going to have to put it on pause. And yeah, CMHC reported a 10% drop just in July in housing starts. And by the way, 2020 two was a worse housing start year than 2021 so it's just all headed in the wrong direction yeah yeah no it's it's going everything's going in the wrong direction for sure what role okay ron last question for you what role can government play here because it's interesting to see justin trudeau now at this cabinet retreat that's going on it's all about it's all about housing and this is it wasn't that long ago he's he said put his he really put his foot in his mouth i thought when he said that, oh, by the way, housing is not a federal responsibility. They don't really look at me. Now it's like he wants to, he realizes that was a mistake. And now it's all he's talking about is housing. He's feeling a lot of pressure from Pierre Polyev and the conservatives because he's talking, Polyev's talking a lot about housing too. Can government make any difference, do you think? Well, if you take Polyev's suggestions and, you know, it's, it's unknown whether he would implement them, but the concept of drastically reducing the taxes associated with new building and greatly speeding up the approvals for zoning and the approvals to build new homes by having the federal government say, hey, municipalities, provinces, if you don't get these highways built, if you don't get these homes built, if you don't change your zoning approach, if we can't see that you're moving forward, we're going to suspend federal transfers to you. Yeah. And that's the way to convince municipalities to change. That's the way to try to take action is to say, we're going to make sure you have to do this or you won't get the money. And then finally, we've got to think about uh, GST, HST uh, credits to people who want to build homes. I mean, you know, it makes no sense to charge tax on something that's already too expensive as it is. Ron, thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. I always appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's talk about uh, offenders who are sent to jail and then they want to stay in jail. Okay, we told you about this story yesterday. Vancouver criminal defense lawyer Melanie Belgalka, who had three clients in one week, contact her and say, I want to stay in jail. Don't not get me out of here. Her clients didn't want her to get them out of jail. They wanted her to keep them in jail. Extend my sentence. Do not ask for bail. I want to stay in jail. Why? Why would someone want to stay in jail? Well, she said because these particular clients are homeless, they wanted to stay in jail because they've got a roof over their head. They're getting three square meals a day. 
and they're away from the drug scene on the streets. You got someone who is a recovering drug addict or trying to kick. I mean, you get some programs maybe behind bars to help you do that. They don't They don't want to go leave jail. We had some incredible calls on this on the open line. I was going to speak to Rob Rothwell about it here momentarily. Have a listen to Kyla Lee here, Vancouver lawyer Kyla Lee. We talked about this on yesterday's show. Here's what she had to tell me. Jail, for a lot of people, feels like the safest place where they have access to the most resources. And so they trade their liberty for the ability just to survive. Okay, let's discuss with my guest, Rob Rothwell. Rob is a former superintendent with the Vancouver Police Department, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Rob, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you. Okay, Rob, you had a long career as a police officer. You wrote a great book about that, by the way. I recommend to the listeners. And did you ever have an experience like that with someone that you you arrested or you dealt with who actually wanted to stay in jail? Absolutely, sure. And uh, I'll just tell you one case of that, which, you know, almost has a comical element to it, but uh, is very serious and uh, involved, uh, you know, a middle-aged man that uh, had been dealing with some mental illness, uh, non-drug addicted, interestingly, and um, he had been in and out of institutions and, of course, was out and uh, had very little support in the community. He, uh, one morning, decided to smash the door of a cafe to get inside before the cafe opened, and he went in and immediately went to the back of the building and uh, found a broom and a dustpan and cleaned up all the glass that he had broken, sat down at a table and just simply waited for me, waited for the police. And when I arrived, you know, he made it very clear he had smashed the door. He was very... uh, um, apologetic to the owner of the cafe and uh, he said he wanted to get back into jail because he wasn't functioning well in the community and this was his mechanism for doing so and uh, and I totally understood that and uh, so I did arrest him of course for uh, damaging the property and uh, and sent him down to jail uh, and uh, hopefully once he's back into the system there would be some uh, counseling and some steps to uh, you know, reconnect him with the services that he needed, either, you know, while in custody or, or uh, when he was released. So this guy, okay, that's amazing. So this guy, he broke the glass door of this cafe, like, deliberately. And that yeah. was, it was all part of the plan. It was a premeditated plan to actually go back to jail. It totally was. And in fact, it wasn't yeah. his first plan to do so, because he actually, I had found him, caught him, maybe a few nights before, uh, and if you think of uh, these Safeway stores and grocery stores that uh, stockpile their uh, soil and their fertilizers and things outside the store, he had taken a number of bags of fertilizer and soil and started uh, um, planting the planters that were in the parking lot. He was adding soil and adding fertilizer and making them look nice, but he was doing it with the goal of getting arrested for stealing uh, the earth and or the soil and uh, and the fertilizer. And when I spoke to him, he said, well, you know, he didn't want to waste it or anything. Uh, the shrubs weren't doing well, and uh, so he felt they needed some attention. And this was a way that he could kind of give back to the community, but hopefully get himself arrested and put back into custody. And on that case, wow. it didn't really work for him, and so he had to elevate the stakes. And the next thing he did was he broke into the cafe, knowing that, uh, you know, break and enter would have a much higher consequence than a few bags of soil. And so he did go back. to. Was he in jail for a long time after that, though? You know, I don't know exactly how long he was in jail for, but my hope yeah. is that once he was reintegrated into the system that uh, they would have recognized, you know, that he needed some treatment and uh, and probably it wasn't uh, treatment within the criminal justice system, but more so within the health care system that he needed. Right. Speaking of former Vancouver Police Department Superintendent Rob Rothwell, so you mentioned that that guy had, had a, he had a history of mental illness, not really, not drug addiction, though, but... Yeah. You know, you often hear, too, about people who are hopelessly addicted to drugs they are trying to kick. I knew a guy who was terribly addicted to drugs. He was, he was homeless at one point. He said that going to jail was actually the best thing that ever happened to him because he got into, he got into a treatment program in jail and was able to stop using drugs. Have you ever seen that, like in your years as a, as a police officer, like drug addicts who actually wanted wanted the treatment programs that are available sometimes if, if, when you go to prison? Absolutely, 100%. You know, uh, definitely I've encountered uh, people that were openly using drugs, or uh, let's call it the pre-legalization period, and their goal was uh, absolutely to get arrested and to be incarcerated and to be connected with programs. And I'll tell you that any uh, drug addict in a lucid moment will tell you they don't want to be a drug addict. It's a horrible life that they're living. And so any step that they can take that forces uh, some kind of treatment upon them, they're actually, they, they want to go that uh, route. And, 
The difficulty is, though, when you encounter those individuals, um, you know, if you don't put them into jail, I've been in circumstances where I picked up the phone and I have phoned every service I could think of to try and get immediate uh, treatment and recovery services for an individual that was begging for it and not being successful, having to say to that person, look, you know, here's the number. They said it's a two-week wait list minimum. You've got to follow up with them, uh, you know, and it's heartbreaking because you actually want to get them into some kind of treatment. They're, they have hit rock bottom and they're begging for it, but there is just no sort of, uh, at that point anyway, door that you could walk them through where they would then be engaged in some sort of long-term treatment that would, uh, would deal with their addiction. Yeah, that is really brutal. And I've heard similar stories, especially when someone is asking for help. Maybe if you're a hardcore addict and now you are ready to try and kick drugs, get clean, you ask for help. And, you know, for some people, that's a small window of opportunity to help someone because if they don't get the help when they, when they need it and when they're asking for it, then, you know, you potentially could go back to using again. That's right. exactly what happens. And, yeah. you know, and if it's not uh, a sustained treatment with a lot of support when they uh, exit the program in the way of housing and, uh, and uh, you know, other needs, um, then they are likely to relapse. And, in wow. fact, you know, when people go into jail for a short term, so somebody that gets arrested for a crime that has an addiction goes into jail, uh, you know, and then is released uh, to wait trial. So they may have spent one week awaiting, uh, you know, in remand. When they're released, they're way more desperate than when they went in. And the first thing they need to do is score. And they've got no money and no provisions, so they're going to commit a crime in order to score to satisfy that urge that uh, now is probably more amped up than ever. Yeah. Okay, listen to this call. This was amazing on yesterday's show. And we were talking about this on the show yesterday about people who actually offenders who actually want to stay in jail they don't want to go out they want to remain in jail now listen to this story we got in the open line yesterday this is Farrell calling in yesterday from Coquitlam and he used to work in a jail working with prisoners who were addicted to heroin and listen to this story he tells about the guy who was released from jail and then well I'll let him tell the story here it is I was a psychologist in the uh, Canadian Penitentiary Service I had a group of 12 inmates on an experimental program. Uh, at the end of a particular period of time, this group was released from prison, and uh, one of the inmates uh, had broken back in. I asked him, why did you do that? He said, it's too hard out there. He, he said, it was just too hard. This guy broke back into jail. Didn't break out of jail. He broke into jail because he didn't want to leave. Rob, your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, you know, I would characterize that as him breaking back into services, not necessarily jail. Yeah, right. And, I mean, if you think of yourself as an addict, you've got two ways to go. You can go back to the street and spiral down a word, and, you know, ultimately that could be fatal choice, or back to some sort of structure and services, uh, which, you know, may require you to break the law to get into the criminal justice system. Yeah. Let's listen to another call. Here's another call we got yesterday on the open line. This is Brian in Coquitlam who said this happened to uh, a friend that, uh, friend of his. Let's listen. I got a friend who got cleaned uh, in jail, and when he got released, he got a job, he got a place, and things were pretty good. He got re-evicted and kicked out of his place, and he lost his job after about two months of living on the streets. He's expressed desire to go back to jail now because he doesn't want to be on the streets in the wintertime. And he's afraid what type of crime he has to commit to be able to land in jail to get at least a year because he doesn't want to come back out on the street. Okay, Rob, that sounds like the, the guy you were dealing with there who actually had a plan. Okay, I'm going to go and break this glass door of this, of this restaurant because it's part of my plan to go back to jail. Sounds like this guy, Brian's pal in Coquitlam there, is thinking about doing the same thing. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it uh, sounds like there's a bit of a pattern out there, but yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. it would be really unfortunate uh, that people feel compelled to commit a serious crime, serious enough to get a year in jail uh, in order to find treatment. Uh, you know, well, let's just hope that it's nothing that involves uh, violence and that sort of thing yeah. in relation to any crime that he may be contemplating. Um, somehow, there has to be a way of connecting with individuals like that well in advance of them carrying out such a plan and having a resource available to them. Uh, you know, there is the... Um, 
Vancouver Downtown Community Court, which is an excellent program, which uh, looks it, it deals primarily with uh, nonviolent offenders that are drug addicted, and uh, it brings together justice, health, and the community really to find um, mechanisms and resources to support people rather than just spitting them back out to the community. And, right. and it's almost like a program that we need to perhaps evolve further and uh, and to grow it so that it has a little more. Um, reach because right now I think it's somewhat limited by its uh, capacity. Yeah, do you think uh, in in that regard do you think that closing down like large institutions like like Riverview for people who are mentally ill and everybody has seen this on the street. It doesn't matter what city you're on in, in British Columbia, everyone has seen people on the street who I think are clearly and you know, obviously mentally ill, they may be brain damaged, they may be doing drugs that are even making it worse. And they need help, man. Like, they're sick. They're mentally ill. And, you know, we closed down a large institution called Riverview, put people on the street, and then left them to their own devices, sadly, without the supports they need in the community. Like, is it time to rethink this whole structure, the whole system? Well, it certainly is. I mean, it is a cruel irony that we release people into the community thinking that we're going to improve their lives. And in many cases, that's, that just simply doesn't happen. And not in all cases, let's be clear about that. I mean, there's a lot of uh, support that does take place out in the community uh, for patients that are dealing with mental illness. But there are those that fall out of the system and, uh, and they just sort of relapse and nobody is there to help them. And so, you know, it, it, is, it is not doing them any favors to allow them to live in such hardship, to spiral down, to get sicker and sicker and sicker until something catastrophic happens. So I do believe that in cases like that, we need to have the authority to pull those people into a treatment program program and to house them properly, work with them, and, and hopefully, you know, reintegrate them back to the community, but not until they're ready. Rob, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, here we go now with our wildfires panel as the wildfires ravage British Columbia and the Northwest Territories, too. Is this all the proof we need? The climate change is the biggest problem and challenge that we face. Should Canada drastically scale back greenhouse gas emissions, especially in the Alberta oil sands, in response? I've got a great panel standing by to discuss this. First, okay, let's listen to Canada's two main political leaders here on this issue, duking it out. This is going to be a preview of a general election in Canada, I think. First, let's listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here. Here he is slamming his conservative opponent, Pierre Polyev, on the wildfires and climate change. Have a listen. For the leader of the opposition to consider uh, that the forest fires that are taking people from their communities and destroying their homes are a mere distraction and not top of mind for people from coast to coast to coast is shameful. But the fact of the matter is he doesn't have anything to say about that because he refuses to put forward any real plan to fight against climate change. Okay, pressure on Polyev here on the wildfires. This week, uh, some liberals basically called him him an arsonist said the conservatives are arsonists with their promise to scrap the carbon tax as the wildfires scorch british columbia polyev was asked about that listen to the conservative leader here now a former liberal minister saying that anybody who doesn't want to pay higher taxes is an arsonist really really as if if we paid higher taxes we'd have less forest fires come on Let's get back to some common sense in this country. And let's start to bring our people together instead of tearing the country apart. Okay, let's discuss. we got a terrific panel assembled for you to discuss this. Jillian Stewart, very pleased to welcome Jillian. Jillian is a journalist and a journalism instructor, Mount Royal University in Calgary. And I recommend her recent op-ed in the Toronto Star about conservative politicians and big oil and climate change. Jillian, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Also on the line is Cody Battershill. Cody is the founder of the advocacy group Canada Action, which supports oil and gas production in Canada. Cody, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks, Mike, and thanks, Jillian, for being here. Okay, thank you to both of you. Jillian Stewart, let me go to you first. What are your thoughts here on the current wildfire crisis that we see here in British Columbia, and what does it say about climate change and where we're at politically here in Canada? 
Well, I think the, you know, the evidence about uh, climate change is just becoming more and more obvious, right? I mean, even climate scientists are saying, you know, while they predicted the rate of warming, um, they had underestimated the impacts that um, the warming would have now that we're seeing, um, you know, the forest fires, the droughts, the floods, the ocean, ocean warming. They are saying that this is even more than they anticipated at this point. Right. So what do you think Canada's response should be? Let, let's talk about the oil sands for a minute. You, both of you guys are in Alberta. Do you think uh, there should be drastic action in the oil, on oil and gas production in Alberta? Um, I do personally. Um, oh. I know we can't. We you can't turn off oil production overnight, and we are going to need oil for for some time, right? But we do have in Alberta and Saskatchewan as well. We do have to seriously consider uh, reducing carbon emissions, and so far we're not really doing that. We're doing more delay tactics, right? We're fighting with the with the federal government. Um, we're talking about carbon capture and storage, which is years and years away. We're really delaying that rather than taking action. Right. Cody Battershill, what do you say to that? Well, Mike, i got a lot of good news for Jillian and your listeners because oil and gas emissions in Canada peaked eight years ago, since have declined 7%, despite production being up 16%. And carbon capture and storage, we've got two of the world's largest commercialized carbon capture and storage projects currently operating in the oil sands region and another one in Saskatchewan. So when we do look around at what's happening in Canada, we have to... Uh, you know, I think first and foremost, recognize first responders, recognize, yes, climate change is an issue. Among many other issues we face as humans, like energy security, poverty, reducing child mortality in the, in the developing world, all of these things are important parts of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And we must balance what we do in Canada with what's happening in the rest of the world, affordability for Canadians, energy reliability for families around the world. And look, the science is clear. Today, fossil fuels are more than 80% of global energy production. Canada is a leader in wind, solar, hydro, and reducing emissions, carbon capture, collaboration. So I actually think the world needs more Canadian energy. Look at LNG, for example. Immediate reductions in global emissions, replacing coal-fired power generation. Um, These are real easy things that we should be talking about. And look, I, I feel really bad for everyone displaced and impacted by wildfires. But today, the technology does not exist for evacuees from Yellowknife to make it to Edmonton in an electric vehicle. So we're going to need all of the above for a long time. Let's be pragmatic. Let's be honest. Jillian Stewart, what do you think of that? Well, I would like to say to Cody, he did he did mention that Alberta is a leader in wind and solar and other kinds of renewable renewable energy, but our provincial government just imposed a moratorium on uh, on renewable energy development for what could be seven eight months, and it came out of nowhere. And there doesn't I mean, there's no she the premier keeps saying that it was actually regulators that asked for this moratorium and there's no evidence of that. So we have to wonder why are they stopping and putting a freeze on on that kind of development and at the same time um, increasing oil production. Right. Hey, Cody, let me ask you this. Cody, I know you are not a, a climate change denier. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to acknowledge that the wildfires, the extreme weather that we're seeing, the, the wildfires here in Canada that are burning in British Columbia right now, are, 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 is climate change responsible for the wildfires we're seeing? Would you say that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything yeah. that human beings do on this planet has an impact, and uh, climate change is one of those impacts. Also, forest management, also more a, a growing global population, also building codes, also fire response. There's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Absolutely, climate change is real and climate change is a problem. Now, how we address that with Canada being less than 2% of global emissions without, uh, 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 you know, remembering that this upcoming winter, we might all need heat. And half the world's global population is fed by food produced with fertilizer that's helped made in part through natural gas and how hospitals run with advanced plastics and even electric vehicles are made from petroleum products and carbon fiber and all of these advanced materials. So I just, the the article that Jillian wrote in the Toronto star did not acknowledge that we're leading in reducing emissions and that emissions peaked. It did not acknowledge 
that our industry is looked at as a global leader. Uh, and actually, the oil and gas industry spends more on clean technology and environmental protection than any other industry in Canada. And Canadians still need schools, hospitals, roads. We still need to sustain our quality of life. And the oil and gas sure. industry is a massive contributor to all of that. J- Jillian, what would you say to that? Well, you know, Cody, I I agree with you completely that, um, you know, the petroleum sector, particularly in Alberta, has brought us not only amazing products, as you say, and a a comfortable way of life and a lot of wealth to everybody in Alberta. Everybody in Alberta has benefited from that. But I would suggest at this point it's time to change, right? The rest of the world is actually transitioning. We're just really slow uh, to take off on that, but we do need to change and if we need any further evidence i don't know what further evidence we need you know you look at what happened in Kelowna. i have relatives in Kelowna. i know Kelowna really well and to watch it like burning like that with those red hot flames it's just heartbreaking and i have to say why why can't we do more you know people in british columbia are our neighbors uh, why can't we be more in step with what's happening around the world in, t- in terms of the energy transition? What, what, do you, what do you think, Jillian, should be done? Do you think the oil sand should be wound down and shut down? Or how, like how, how aggressively would you go on it? No, I I don't think they they can't be shut down right now. I said that earlier. That's impossible, right? But we should be taking steps to either put a cap on emissions or to somehow know that we are, in fact, reducing emissions overall. I mean, I know there's been work done on reducing emissions per barrel, but at the same time, production is higher. So that kind of goes flat. And so what are we doing to actually show the world that we are on board with this energy transition? and that we can, you know, we, we want to reduce these carbon emissions that are causing so much damage to the planet. Okay, yeah. Cody, I know you want to... Res- okay, real quick response. Go ahead. Mike, I just got to say, global coal use is at an all-time high. Countries around the world are investing in more oil production, more natural gas production. So the world is, yes, also investing in more renewables. All of those things are happening at the same time. Canada is seen as a leader in our green policies, not a laggard. So when Jillian says that Canada needs to get with the program, we are at the leading edge of the program. We've got something like 20% of the world's carbon pricing uh, policies implemented in Canada. It's it's remarkable, our leadership. So I just want us to have an informed conversation where we're not, you know, maybe fear-mongering about what Canada isn't doing because we are leading at the global stage with all of the above when when it comes to energy. All right, we continue with our discussion panel on climate change and the wildfires. Jillian Stewart and Cody Battersill are my guests. We got lots of phone calls here. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Hi, Hi thank you. Jillian, do you understand that we could shut Canada down tomorrow and, the, and they would make no impact? Emissions don't respect borders. I repeat, emissions don't respect borders. So why are you, well, what more do you want us to do? We are 1.5%, which is a speck in an ocean full of emissions. Now, what we can do is export our LNG to countries that are burning coal. However, okay. Okay. you guys... Okay, Deb, thank you. Thank you for the call. Okay, Jillian, you know, we hear this argument frequently that Canada, small population, is just a small part of the problem. Your thoughts? Well, why why do we not want to be part of the solution? Why do we not want to join um, the rest of the world in terms of this transition? Why do we want to be left? Why do we want to be left behind? I mean, the International Energy Agency is telling us that there's more money going into renewable energy, you know, now than there is into oil and gas. So why do we not want to be part of that? I mean, Cody's mentioned that we're a leader. Well, let's make ourselves even more of a leader instead of lagging behind. Cody, what do you say to that? Uh, I would just say that with our reliance on the energy of today, we have to continue to invest in it while we also look to tomorrow. And Canada is not a laggard. Canada is a leader where like 80% of our power in this country comes from hydro, nuclear, wind. We're seventh in the world, I believe, for installed renewable capacity with hydro. We're like ninth for wind, ninth in the world for installed wind capacity. And we have like the 40th largest country. We're already Mm. punching well above our weight. We need to balance uh, uh, with fires. We need better firefighting, more firefighting equipment to help the brave women and men fighting those fires. 
We need to also look at continuing to reduce emissions. I mentioned oil and gas emissions peaked eight years ago, but production's up since because of technology. Global demand for energy is growing across the board for all things. Africa, Asia, they want to live a better quality of life, and they're going to use whatever energy they have that's reliable and affordable. So we need all of the above. Jack in Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Jack. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Uh, Just uh, two things. Uh, First, uh, your your guest mentioned solutions. Why aren't the the why isn't anybody uh, uh, um, hitting on China for cranking out uh, coal fire plants for their energy needs? They're cranking them like hotcakes. We pay the consequences here via higher taxes. Nobody's saying anything or punishing China. Second thing is, how about the natural phenomenon that happened last year, the volcanic uh, phenomenon in Tonga? It's considered one of the biggest volcano uh, eruptions, uh, bigger, I think, even Mount St. Helens. Apparently, if you look okay. it up, 1.5 degrees yeah. hotter in the next five years. That's okay. a natural okay. phenomenon. Okay. Let's, Jillian, you know, the argument that China is burning all this coal to generate power there, I mean, that, that's not deniable. But, you know, you frequently hear the argument, and Cody has already mentioned it, that we'd be better off selling them our liquefied natural gas, burns cleaner than coal, and then the planet would be better off. So should we, we should keep producing, we should keep going and maybe, maybe even ramp up natural gas production in Canada. Your yeah, thoughts? and that, you know, that, that has been put forward as a solution, for sure. Yeah. But let's not forget that China, which is, you know, the largest contributor to carbon emissions in the world, is also a leader in solar wind, electrification. I mean, they have been going all out in terms of that. And they are actually, in many ways, way ahead of, of where the United States is or, or any other country. So, yes, they are burning coal, but at the same time, they are making huge leaps in terms of turning to renewables and electrification. Cody, what do you say to that? Go ahead. I, I just got to say, that sounded that almost sounded like kudos to China for building out fired power plants while also investing in wind and solar and i haven't necessarily heard the same level of positivity for canada where we've peaked oil and gas emissions our lng will reduce global emissions and we're also leading in wind and solar so there's a bit of a disparity there i just i just want us to be balanced i want us to again respect the people who have lost their homes it's a tragedy maybe we can all donate whatever we can that's meaningful to us if we're in a position to do so we need okay. more firefighting equipment. We need we need to look at all of these things. But shutting down Canadian oil and gas is not the answer because it's replaced by Saudi Arabia, the United States, other producers. As the global population grows, we need Thank more you. Canada, not less. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.